Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, January 4th, 2011. I am so glad I didn't mess that up. <laughs> oh man, I the first hour of today's program is going to be weird, and we got a good uh, sermon slash lecture in the second hour. Like I've been twittering lately. A lot. What has gotten into me? And Facebooking and ugh. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and all of it is, well, completely unnecessary. I mean, the, the, one, of the, one of my favorite sayings, and one that I live by, you know, I, you, you wouldn't want to talk, you know, listen to somebody that didn't practice what they preach. Well, I practice what I preach in this regard. Uh, the, the fine saying that is out there that if you want to find a, you know, find a fast way to get a job done, give it to a lazy person. <laughs> for whatever reason, a lot of people sent, seem to think that it's important to give me, you know, ask me how I would do a particular job. Haven't figured out why that is though. But anyway, uh, so you know, if you want to, if you want to figure out how to get a job done quickly, you give it to a lazy person. That being the case, you know, if somebody were to come to me and say, you know, Chris, I've decided that I, I, I want to be a Bible teacher or I want to be a pastor. What do you think the easiest way to, uh, you know, to get that job done would be? It, I'm glad you asked. I, I'm still a little confused why you're asking me, but let me let me tell you the question. Uh, let me tell you the answer I would give you, and that is, uh, you know, um, plain and simple. Um, you don't want to put a lot of thought into it. And what I mean by that is, is that no creativity necessary, none whatsoever. You don't need to wing it. You know, it's and you because know, last time I checked, you you've never met God. I've never met him. So. Uh, that being the case, it's best to just go with the stuff that he's already revealed about himself. Preach it with gusto. Preach it with passion. Preach it with uh, you know with illustrations that help flesh out what that text is really saying, and uh, and you you will uh, do exactly what it is that God's word is asking of you, pastor or teacher. And it doesn't take a lot of creativity on your part takes a lot of fidelity to the text and understanding what the text means, but no creativity necessary. No, I, in fact, creativity is is not one of those things that I look on favorably as I review sermons here at Fighting for the Faith. So, you know, in, in the crazy things that are being said out there, all I see is a whole lot of creativity 
And, uh, well, <clears throat> not as much fidelity as we would need. Yeah, creativity does not equal fidelity when it comes to the Word of God. No speculation is necessary. Just crack open the book and read it. And if you're uncertain as to how to properly understand a passage, learn the original languages. And then check out what scholars have written and commentated on those passages so that you can properly understand how to handle them. And then teach that to folks. Tell the story. Tell the story. Tell the story. You know, you're saying, okay, you did that three times, Chris. Right. I, I, I said that three times, once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Holy Spirit. But uh, now, <clears throat> at the risk of uh, having to uh, turn in my man card, I, uh, I I have to confess something to y'all. And, uh, yeah, you know, no, I... Listen, I've I've seen uh, the Facebook and Twitter streams of many of you listeners out there, and I know some of you guys out there well that you have a soft spot in your heart, and that you, in for whatever reason, you don't only watch movies that where there's explosions and and gratuitous violence. No, and see, and you would think that because you know I'm a rough exterior pirate that you know that's exactly what I would do, but uh, no, actually, I I ha- I have a soft spot in my heart for. Uh, for well-told stories that, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, would more than, the the primary audience is more of a female uh, bent than a male. But that doesn't mean that I have to turn in my man card. But this being the case, I I, I might the other night uh, it was uh, New Year's Eve, and uh, my wife and daughter said, you know, Dad, why don't we watch a movie tonight. And I said, sure. And the, and I said, what do you guys want to watch? And they, well, we're not certain what we want to watch. Let's look at our DVD collection or see what's on Netflix instant watch. And, and, uh, and, you know, let's see what we feel like. And I thought, all right, sure. No problem. I, I, I'm game. And so my, uh, my youngest daughter took the lead. She, uh, you know, this was her movie to pick and apparently. And so she rifled through our entire DVD library and boiled it down to two movies. Movie number one option was Hook. Fantastic movie, by the way. Movie number two option was The Little Princess. Now, <clears throat> we ended up watching The Little Princess. And you're thinking, okay, Chris, this is just, yeah, I, I know confession's good for the soul. So we watched The Little Princess. And, um, and it, I wasn't crying at the end of it. It's just that my eyes were misting. And so anyway, uh, so but one of the things that really struck me in in watching this movie, if you have not seen this movie or you haven't seen it maybe in a decade or so, because I think it's 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 that old, maybe older. But uh, if you haven't seen it, it's it's a fascinating story. It's a well-told story. And the one thing that's interesting about it is it demonstrates the power of story. The power of a well-told story and how it draws people in. Well, see, that's the best part about teaching the Bible, is that um, the Bible, so much of it is told as story. So much of it is story. You've got these incredible narratives. You have these amazing poetry sections. Um, and you know, actually, those are hymns. You know, those that's the Psalms are the hymn book of the uh, of the Bible. And then you've got entire narratives right there in the New Testament too. So, the the Bible is just brimming with story. And one of the things I think is is uh, in, well endemic of the poverty that has taken over so many of the so called Christian churches out there today is that 
is that God's word is preached in 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 abstract. You know, when when we listen to these seeker driven sermons that always seem to fall so miserably short here at Fighting for the Faith, one thing that, you know, over and over again, what what happens is is that you have this sentence or partial sentence fragment ripped out of context from this book, then you you jump back into, you know, this book over here and you rip a sentence out of context, and then you jump ahead to this book over here and you leapfrog back over there, and and you're and all they're doing is picking up little tiny bits and pieces of sentence sentences or sentence fragments, and then they're weaving their own narrative around it. Well, see, that's that's not how the Bible's supposed to be understood, and that is just right. It's 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 well, it could be heretical at best, but uh, you know what we're dealing with here is is a refusal, a complete lack of willingness on the part of pastors to tell the story. And it, it the best part about it is again, no n- there's absolutely no uh, uh creative thinking necessary. The text is right there. Tell the story, draw people in because God it, the, the Bible is God's story. It is the story of what God has done and what God is doing to rescue humanity. And I'm looking forward to the lecture today in hour number two. Hour number two today, um, I, I, I'll be playing a lecture that was uh, recommended to me by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Timely message, by the way. But I, I, I won't say anything more except to thank, thank Pastor Charmley. Thank you, Pastor Charmley, for the uh, recommendation. And I'm looking forward to playing it. But, uh, you know, there's a line in there. In the in that lecture that we're playing today in hour number two, that has to do with uh, when it comes to the gospel, you know, uh, you know the the uh, the things that are of first importance as listed in First Corinthians fifteen, uh, that uh, it, Christ is the one who does the uh, dying, he, the bleeding, the rising again. The thing that we contribute is is our sin. That uh, you know, see, yeah. So the Bible is not about you. It's not about the things you have to do to you know to have this imaginative risk taking nietzschean ubermensch kind of life that's that in fact that's like the that's the exact opposite of what christianity is christianity is really and the bible is really all about the story telling the story the story the good news the story of what christ has done for us and the story begins all the way back in genesis and it's fantastic and when you tell the story, people hang on your every word. When you tell the story, they live, experience, and feel the drama. When you tell the story, they laugh, they weep, they cry. And when they're laughing and weeping and crying about what God has done for them, their great God and Savior, that's the thing that makes the difference in the whole world. Pastors and teachers tell the story. Tell the story. <sighs> anyway, I just I had to get that off my chest. Okay, on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we're, we're going to start off in san in in insanity. We're going to dive into insanity, and uh, and then we'll come back into sanity again. So um, today is uh, is kind of like a sanity sandwich with some insanity in the middle. That's just you know want to let you know that that's what today's. <clears throat> edition of fighting for the faith is so you know yeah 
I don't even know where to begin with what I want to talk about, except for, um, well, let me do this. I'll start off today with a little bit of, uh, uh, with an op-ed piece that somebody sent me the link to today. It was published on the uh, Grace to You uh, website. Uh, That's John MacArthur's uh, radio ministry website. And the name of it is An Unremarkable Faith. In fact, you know what? I should just just go right to it. So, from the uh, Grace to You blog at gty.org forward slash blog. Blog post written by Tommy Clayton, who is the content developer and broadcast editor over there at Grace to You. And the name of his blog post article, it's it's really an article, is entitled An Unremarkable Faith. And I find this uh, article to be refreshingly the opposite of the silliness that we're getting from the seeker-driven guys, particularly guys like Stephen Furtick and the Sun Stand Still prayers and 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 Mark Batterson and you know how to tame how to kill a lion on a snowy day with only a, a handkerchief I don't think that's really the name of it but you get what I'm saying uh, <clears throat> Tommy writes he says uh, meet Larry Larry is a 36 year old science teacher Larry married Kathy 12 years ago well they love each other and they enjoy raising their two sons. Larry's life wouldn't hold out much interest to the average citizen. His Facebook account doesn't draw many friends, and nobody ever leaves a comment on his blog. In fact, most people would summarize Larry's life with one word. Boring. But not Larry. Teaching osmosis to junior high students, playing Uno with his kids, and working in the yard with Kathy is paradise to him. But the real love of his life is Jesus. Larry's a Christian. He's been walking with the Lord for more than 20 years. Larry's Christian friends all employ the same word to describe their companion. He's faithful. He's faithful to his local church where he's been teaching Sunday school for nearly a decade. He's never ignored a legitimate financial need within the body of Christ. He gives sacrificially, but secretly. Larry devotes himself to his wife and his family, lovingly shepherding them through every season of life with the scriptures. He's faithful to his job and fellow colleagues. He's managed to share Christ with nearly every junior high teacher in Oakwood Academy. And although they mock Larry behind his back, all the teachers respect him. It won't shock you to know Larry pays his taxes, never misses an opportunity to serve his community. Larry's life commends the gospel. He's faithful, but he's unremarkable or is he now if if you're bored with larry's christianity it's probably because you've been influenced by a very different idea uh the idea of the, a very different idea of the christian life larry's not radical he's not wild at heart not in the sense of taking careless risks jeopardizing the stability of his family or pursuing a life of adventure you could say larry is quite content with his station in life a station given to him by god he aspires to live a quiet and peace, peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Sound familiar? Well, there's a stubborn and influential voice within evangelicalism that seems to despise simple yet unremarkable faithfulness. Pastor Tom Lyon acknowledges that when he writes, quote, The value of a humble and unassuming life seems to have been eclipsed by this upwardly mobile dare-to-be-a-Daniel brand of Christianity which elevates ambition above maturity and has seated the stable but unremarkable believer in coach class. Something is wrong here. Lyon went on to describe what he called the unremarkable Christian. 
his aspirations, his thirst for notoriety, his estimate of greatness have all been changed. His horizon has come closer to home. He finds in the Bible no call to be outstanding. He is not without ambition, but his dreams have nothing to do with rising above his fellows. Unless pressed, he prefers anonymity to attention. He is steady, steadied by grace, and one of the most amazing things about grace is how it works even in this disposition. That's not an endorsement for ministerial mediocrity or a call to settle for small, lifeless pursuits. On the contrary, it's a plea for excellence, but excellence according to Scripture. A humble, spirit-filled pursuit of greatness should characterize every Christian's efforts in ministry. But remember that greatness in God's kingdom is unappealing to the world, and it's unremarkable. How... How does the world view your life? John MacArthur writes, quote, Christians are to be known for their quiet demeanor, not for making disturbances. Unbelievers should see us as quiet, loyal, diligent, virtuous people. To promote a tranquil and quiet life, believers must pursue godliness and dignity. Godliness can refer to a proper attitude, dignity to proper behavior. Thus, believers are to be marked by a commitment to morality, holy motives, Uh, must result in holy behavior, both contribute to tranquility and the quietness of lives. Third use of the law, but still legitimate use. Here's a thought to ponder as you go your way. Had you befriended Larry, how might you react to his faithful yet unremarkable life? Would you advise him to venture out further, take a radical risk for the kingdom, and leave behind the quiet, mundane confinements of his Norman Rockwell existence? Or would you commend Larry for how he's living? giving God glory for such a faithful yet unremarkable uh, Christian. Remember, the handful of so-called radical risk-taking Christians stand on the backs of men like Larry. They are only able to take their risks because the Larrys of this world won't, and Larry wouldn't have it any other way. Great blog post, Tommy, and uh, couldn't agree with you more. I, I have no idea. How it is that everybody thinks that the sun stands still, slay the lion in the snow books and all that kind of stuff somehow represents biblical Christianity. It doesn't. I think you made your case rather well. Okay, moving along here. I I, I need to warn you ahead of time that uh, when we get back from the break, we will be checking in with the third eagle of the apocalypse. I just wanted to let you know that. Um, unfortunately, I'm sad to report this though, that unfortunately, um, William Tapley still has yet to get a decent lighting system and probably should consider getting a different makeup artist because every time he's done a video lately, he sure does look jaundiced, you know, just something I've noticed. Maybe, maybe he needs to see a doctor. I don't know. Anyway, uh, today on my, uh, on Facebook, um, I received a friend request from a gentleman by the name of Kevin M. Oliver. His name is Kevin M. Oliver. And uh, in his friend request, he he asked me to take a look at his YouTube channel. He has a YouTube channel, and this is the the name of his YouTube channel. I did not make this up. It's youtube.com forward slash not your typical Negro. That's right. Youtube.com forward slash not your typical Negro. And boy, he does discernment work as well, and he does it on YouTube. And uh, he does videos. Do you all all remember? Oh, man. I am going to date myself here. Okay, back in 1985-1986, there was some commercials that ran on the air um, for Isuzu, the uh, the car company, and their spokesman was a guy by the name of Joe Isuzu. 
And uh, Joey Suzu was hilarious. Okay, and what would happen is is that uh, he would make these outrageous claims, and then there would be like the, there would be footers or you know, notes coming up on the on the television screen that said, "No, he's lying. He's not really telling the truth." He, he'd say something like, "And with every purchase of a of, of an Isuzu vehicle, uh, we'll give you a, a free bar of gold, or you know, some some silly thing like that." And then and then the the subtitle would come up on the television and said, "No, he's lying. We we won't really give you a bar of gold. You know, things like that." Anyway, um. His channel, he does discernment work uh, in of that vein, kind of in the Joey Suzu vein. And I was looking through the the video clips that he has on his channel there at YouTube, and boy, has he found some doozers! So I, I I'm passing these along. To, I, I, I'll have to pass some of these along to you on a regular basis because well, they're worth passing along. And uh, so this first one that that'll be for today's program is um uh, we've covered Mac Brunson before, but um. <laughs> this video, I, I have to dub the worst reason ever given as to why you should tithe. Given, you know, the, this is the worst reason given by a pastor as to why you should tithe, and you've got to hear it to believe it. Here is uh, Mac Brunson from the YouTube channel, uh, YouTube.com forward slash Not Your Typical Negro. Here we go. It's amazing. It's amazing. How the human heart knows that when you come before God, I'm supposed to bring something to What? Okay, now listen. He's saying the pagan heart. Okay, Mac Brunson, by the way, he is a pastor of one of the largest Southern Baptist congregations in the country. It's in Jacksonville. And... um, and uh, this is one of the largest Southern Baptist common, uh, co- congregations, and he's making an argument, literally, you know, that you need to tithe. And the argument is based upon the fact that pagans tithe. I am not kidding. Let, let's continue. Wait, you see that in paganism, church? The ancient Egyptians, the ancient Persians, the ancient Mesopotamians, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Assyrians. All the way through, all of them, if you look back through their religious writings, all of those pagans tithed to their gods. Yeah. Okay, so, Mac, what you're saying is is that because pagans tithed, tithed to their gods, that Christians should do the same yeah, we'll we'll pick this apart in just a minute, but you got to hear some more of this. I mean, th- I mean, this is the worst reason I've ever heard given by a pastor as to why you should tithe. Isn't that interesting? You know, there are literally hieroglyphics that talk about the family of Ramesses tithing to Ra. Now it just makes you wonder. I mean, what was the uh, the hieroglyphic s- symbol for um, tithing? Was it the one zero with a percent sign? You know. You get to the Tel Almarna tablets, and the Tel Almarna tablets speak about the Babylonian king, all of society, down to the peasants, how they would give a tithe to their gods. Yeah. <laughs> Last time I checked, the Tel Almarna tablets and uh, their contents have not crept into our Bible yet. You come to the cuneiform tablets of Mesopotamia, the earliest writing known to man, and on those little cuneiform tablets, you read about how the people of that society brought a tithe to Marduk, the moon god. Right. Um, 
Mac. Um, um, dude. Um, Marduk the Moon Dog. Uh, m- uh, Moon Dog. <laughs> Sorry, Marduk the Moon God. Um, yeah. Um, though not well. Yeah, he's not really um mentioned favorably in the Bible. <sighs> Let's continue. This is just gonna get better. Read about Tiglath-Pileser and his god, Aser. He would tithe to his god, Aser. It's recorded in the writings of the Assyrians. Yeah, and the writings of the Assyrians, they they haven't made it into the Bible yet. But I'm sure that, you know, Elaine Pagels and some of the, the scholars in her end of the theological camp might find a way to you know put it into their bibles now the amazing thing to me is this is how ancient pagan egyptians who worship beetles and dogs and crocodiles and cats would tithe to them how the ancient babylonians would tithe to the zodiac the stars of heaven how the ancient mesopotamians would would tithe to the moon and how the ancient assyrians would tithe to Aser, who was this horrible horrible vengeful hateful murderous God and how we as Christians debate the issue of tithing in worship today. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, now, uh, this is just hey, a couple more seconds. If the pagans did it. Yeah, that that's a reason to tithe because pagans do it. Who worshipped no God. What in the world is the conclusion about the people of God who worship the one true living God? <laughs> okay, now pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip because that's exactly what that was there. That was just a, pl- a flat-out fallacious argument, and a, a horrible non-secular. And let me explain why. Okay, now... Um, if you're familiar with logical fallacies, okay, there, there's all kinds of different logical fallacies out there. But there's a logical fallacy that's by, known as the appeal to common practice, the appeal to common practice fallacy. And the way this works is, is that um, the appeal to common practice is a fallacy which follows this structure. One, X, whatever X is, it, fill in the blank, is a common action. Therefore, X is correct, moral, justified, reasonable, etc. The basic idea behind the fallacy is that the fact that, that most people do X as evidence to support the action or practice uh, it's a fallacy because the mere fact that most people do something does not make it correct, moral, justified, or reasonable. Let me give you an example of this. Um, if you know those those of us who are parents, we we've all had our children at one time or another come to us and say, "Mom, Dad, I want to go with my friends to do X, Y, or Z." And the and the X, Y, or Z thing that they want to do is well morally dubious. And uh, you look at your child and you go, you want to do what? I want to do X, Y, or Z. And the reason why you want to do X, Y, or Z is what, son? And you go, well, because everybody's doing it. Right. Now, if everybody were jumping off of a cliff naked, would you do it too? You, uh, no? Then why do you want to do that? Because what they, you're asking me to let you do is wrong. It is? Yeah, let's open up our Bibles and take a look at this. Anyway, you understand what I'm saying. So here we got Mac Brunson of one of the largest Southern Baptist megachurches in the country basically saying that, you know, listen, you need to tithe because 
pagans tithed to their gods. Yeah, let me let me explain to you some other things that pagans did regarding their gods. Um, I mean, I mean, watch how this argument works. See if it if this makes any sense to you. Okay, back in the day, the back in the day, there were these deities back in the ancient world that were known for well, <clears throat> fertility, fertility. Yes. And um, and you know this Asherah comes to mind. You know there there's different deities that had to do with uh, human procreation and fertility. And the way people back then worshipped those deities was via um, um, temple prostitution. And uh, and so you know using this argument, I mean you know these same deities that uh, Mac Brunson is referring to here. Um, some of them, well, had cousin deities or f- related deities that also had to do with fertility. So if if you think we should tithe because those pagans tithe, then don't you think, Mac, that we should also practice um, um, temple prostitution in our churches because, well, the pagans did it too. Um, yeah, you know, and, and then you've got this kind of thorny little issue about, um, well, sacrificing your own children in the fire. Uh, Molech comes to mind. Did you know that in the ancient world that people worshipped this god by the name of Molech? And, uh, and uh, in fact, um, yeah, well, Molech was, you know, that actually wasn't his name. In Hebrew, his name was actually Melech, but never once in the Hebrew Bible do you see uh, the Masoretic text uh, punctuated as Melech because Melech means king. Uh, but uh, for whatever reason, the Masoretes, uh, the Masoretic folk, uh, when they would put the little punctuation marks in there to uh, <clears throat> tell you about this deity, always referred to him as Molech, and uh, Molech is the Hebrew word for shame. And so anyway, but Molech was one of these really, really, you know, back then he was a deity who required that people, well, that they're, they're you know, human sacrifices. And so people would actually uh, sacrifice their children to the god Molech uh, via fire, I think in the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, so uh, you know, uh, the question comes up. I mean, I mean, if we should tithe because well, these ancient pagans tithe, then don't you think we should probably also think about well, considering throwing our kids in the fire? And uh, you know, and, and you know, and then Baal. Well, there was human sacrifice in the worship of Baal too. And so not only did the ancient pagans in the in that time tithe to Baal, but uh, there was times when the, those followers of Baal would actually engage in human sacrifice. So, you know, Mac, I just, as I see you, the, how your argument works, I just the question comes up, um, the kind of awkward question, if the reason I should tithe is because pagans do it, then uh, why shouldn't I also be doing the other things that pagans did as they worshiped their particular deities, you know, such as <clears throat> practice human sacrifice, sacrifice my children, and or engage in temple prostitution? I mean, if this is the argument that you're going to give that why I should tithe, then I would... <laughs> If the uh, you know you understand what I'm saying, so yeah, this is no way. By the way, this is no way you should determine whether or not Christians are required to tithe. The way you do that is you look at what the Bible says, and you teach it in context. That's the only way that you can get at Christian doctrine and teaching. And this argument that Mac Brunson gave from one of the largest Southern Baptist congregations in the United States, in fact, the whole world. That wasn't a biblical argument. In fact, that was the worst reason I've ever heard given as to why I should tithe. Anyway, if you <laughs> were up on our first break, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> 
Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance and an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do, chief ex- weapons are. our chief weapons are, um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop, stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, it doesn't matter what pagans do. That's no way of determining what Christians should do. Just something I've noticed. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. That's great. It starts with, with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplanes. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I am a hurricane. Listen to your You know what this means. Time for William Tapley update. Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co prophet of the end times. Good news is he's not playing his Casio today. Right? It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. I love that song. Anyway, uh, <laughs> today the uh, <clears throat> Third Eagle of the Apocalypse uh, is going to be explaining to us uh, how in 2010 major prophecies now have led to this next big revealing, uh, this next big major prophecy being fulfilled. And... Uh, <clears throat> Maybe I should let him listen, uh, explain it to you. And like I said, you know, one of the things that uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Third Eagle, um, Mr. Co-Prophet, uh, you know, I, um, you're a regular feature here at Fighting for the Faith. And um, I just I hate looking at, you know, these videos that you're putting out, realizing that if you just bumped up your budget for your lighting and maybe a little bit of better makeup, you wouldn't look so jaundiced when you delivered your... Anyway, here's William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. On this program, I want to make an amazing announcement, and that is that the two prophets 
Enoch and Elijah have returned to planet Earth. Who knew? I mean, that, I mean, the, I mean, here, he, here, this is a huge announcement that Enoch and Elijah have returned to planet Earth, and and I mean, he didn't even ha- do the courtesy of like you know trumpets and fanfare and thing, you know. Huh. I mean, this is big news. I mean, did he find this on a website? They are the two great witnesses of the end times. Now, in the last three years, quite a few Bible prophecies have been fulfilled. But in 2010, four amazing prophecies were fulfilled. First of all, the seven years of tribulation began on October 13th. That was when those Chilean miners were rescued from the mine. Right, because when, yeah, did you, yeah, yeah, I had a hard time figuring out how those two connected. You know, the Chilean miners being rescued and that that somehow being the kickoff of the tribulation. Those 70 days that they were in the ground symbolized the seven years that we Christians will be persecuted during the next seven years. Now, I want to point something out here. Uh, Somebody asked me a question Back before around Christmas time, you know, Chris, you know, they you know, they said, you know, William Tapley seems kind of like low hanging fruit. Why? Why is it that you play the William Tapley uh, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse uh, videos, uh, you know, at least the audio from them on your radio program? You know, I'm glad that somebody asked me this question. Yeah, yes, it might seem like low hanging fruit. This is not something that's difficult to refute but there's there's a particular thing i go after and and well, let me let me explain it in this sense notice how he's using the bible and even how he's reading um the newspapers what what he, everything is a symbol of something else and so th- there this is a common problem in the christian church and it's not just some the william tapley's who do this kind of stuff so what he does is he, he takes a news story and 70 days they were down in the bowels of the earth and those 70 days symbolize X, Y, or Z. So the question comes up, I mean, well, how do you know that the the 70 days they were in the bowels of the earth symbolize this as opposed to that? How do you know that they it symbolizes, you know, the tribulation as opposed to, you know, maybe... The fact that maybe we should be watching the Care Bears again. That we, you know, that we should bring them back into syndication so that we can all watch the Care Bears. How do you know that's what they symbolize? The second amazing fulfillment of Bible prophecy is that the Catholic Church began to be trampled under by the Gentiles as prophesied in Revelation 11, verse 2. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Just... Um, the, I, the, the Catholic Church is being trampled by Gentiles. Um, the last time I checked, um, the 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 Hebrew word that they use for Gentiles is goyim, and uh, the last time I checked, the Catholic Church was riddled with roughly well one something billion. Uh, you know, one billion goyim. Uh, the, the last time I checked, the 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 Catholic Church was ninety nine point nine 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 percent goyim. That would be Gentiles. So, um, <laughs> to say that the Catholic Church is going to be trampled underfoot by Gentiles, uh, maybe I'm just not understanding what he means by a Gentile. And that occurred when Pope Benedict 
allowed certain forms of condoms to be used. The Catholic Church has never allowed condoms. And of course, the third major fulfillment of Bible prophecy was when Jesus opened the second seal of Revelation. Yeah, I missed that in the news. Where, where was that covered where Jesus opened the second seal? And released the red horse of war. This occurred when North Korea attacked that island off of South Korea. The fourth major event, which occurred in 2010, was that forest fire in Israel. This also was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. What? <laughs> the forest fire in Israel was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Anyone want to care to wager with me that uh, what he's going to do is find some obscure text, symbolize it, and show how this somehow connects to the forest fire in Israel? What forest fire? And that is that Israel would lose the blessings of Almighty God in 2010. Now, these last two events, the start of World War III, the first birth pang of the tribulation period. Is anybody else covering all the... where Where are the major armies fighting the major battles um, for World War III. I mean, since World War III has now started, I mean, just the question I have, because when, you know, as, as a student of history, one of the things I've noticed is that uh, when I study the history of World War I and World War II, uh, the newspapers were awash in stories of armies that were battling and in conflict and on the move and being supplied. There was... You know, here in the United States, you had people raising money uh, for the war effort via war bonds. Where is all that happening regarding World War III? What's, it, it, what's the major front? Where's the major front lines being fought in World War III? Is it in the, uh, in the east? Is it in the west? Is it in the north, south? Is it on planet Mars? I just And this forest fire in Israel have two more very important significances. And that is, they predict the return of the prophets Enoch and Elijah. The lives of Enoch and Elijah in the Bible and their mission in these end times are reflected in the fire and the attack on South Korea. First, let's take a look at how Elijah was taken up to heaven. Yeah, please. And then I can't wait to hear how this is connected to the forest fire in Israel. Man. Second Kings chapter two verse one. Yeah, I've read Second Kings chapter two many times in my lifetime, and never once have I connected it to the a forest fire in Israel. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Notice the fiery chariots. The f yeah, I saw that. Fiery horses. Yeah, I saw that. And the whirlwind. And a whirlwind. Okay. And uh, so you're... <sighs> All three of these were prominent aspects of that forest fire in Israel. Really, there was fiery horses and chariots in the forest fire in Israel. I, I miss that. I... <laughs> really? <laughs> Apparently, the uh, recent forest fire in Israel included chariots of fire.
I I miss the whole chariots of fire in the in the uh, forest fires in Israel. Yet he said they were prominently featured in that forest fire. And now let's look at another amazing incident which followed Elijah's return to heaven. And this occurred to his successor, the prophet Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. And he went up from thence to Bethel. Now this he is the prophet Elisha. And he has received double Elisha's power after Elijah went to heaven. And as he was going up by the way, little boys came out of the city and mocked him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tore 42 children of them. Now do these two she-bears symbolize Gog and Magog? And the tearing of the 42 children symbolize the takeover of Israel in the end times. Now, how do you know that the two she-bears in the story symbolize Gog and Magog? How do you know that they don't symbolize, um, you know, Saddleback Church in Willow Creek? How do you know that they don't symbolize that? How do you know they don't symbolize Joel Osteen and uh, and Benny Hinn? Those 42 boys cursed by Elisha have a direct parallel with the 42 young cadets who were burned alive in that bus during the forest fire in Israel. Yeah, I totally missed that connection. Thus, we see there are four amazing parallels between Elijah's life and his being taken up to heaven and this forest fire in Israel. First of all, there's the fire itself. Second of all, the whirlwind. Third, those 42 youths who were unfortunately burned alive on that... What about the chariots? You said there were chariots. ...tour bus. Very similar to the 42 young boys who were cursed by the prophet Elisha. Lastly, this forest fire occurred on Mount Carmel, where Elijah spent most of his life. And there was another amazing incident in Elijah's life, which occurred on Mount Carmel. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 33. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now Elijah wants to make sure that his holocaust is very wet so that when God catches it on fire, it will be clearly a miracle. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. Elisha had them use four barrels of water and pour it on the Holocaust. One time, two times, and three times. That's four, four, four. And that signifies an end times prophecy. Oh, there we go again. Wow. That was amazing how he was able to uncover that. Nobody else had ever done that before. A few days after. Those 42 young cadets were burned in that bus. Two more succumbed to their injuries. That meant there were a final total of 44 people killed in that Israel forest fire. That is not accidental. You may also remember that there were four South Koreans killed in that attack by North Korea. And that ties these two events together. That 444 number is not accidental. These two events prophesy the return of Enoch and Elijah. So are they going to hold a press conference? I mean, you say they're already here, and they, these numbers prove it. First Kings 1838. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And Eli- Yeah, we know the famous account of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Very familiar with the story. How does this prove he's come back again? Elijah said to them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slew them there. Once again, fire is associated with Elijah's mission on earth. Yeah. And incidentally, please note what happens to those false prophets. You false prophets who post videos on YouTube saying that the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon, this is what is going to happen to you. This will be your... (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Them is fighting words. Okay. Yeah, this is what's going to happen to you. Okay. The same as those false prophets of Baal. And now let's take a look at Enoch and his life in the Bible. Yeah, please. uh, Tell us more. Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And in Genesis 5, verse 23. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Elijah's mission is to the Jews in Israel. But Enoch will preach Christianity to the far-off Gentile nations. And I believe that is the relationship with Korea. Now, both Elijah and Enoch will warn about the coming of Armageddon. Yeah, and... Jude 1, verse 4, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam. Now, this means that Adam was Enoch's great, 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 great... You know, I'm beginning to take back what I said. I I don't think that William Tapley needs to get better lighting. I think somebody needs to take the camera away from him. Grandfather, it will be interesting to see what Enoch looks like. Will he look like a mixture, for example, of all the races of mankind? Because he is so close to Adam. Prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. This is one of Enoch's main missions, is announcing Armageddon. To execute judgment on all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We see almost the exact same description in the book of Enoch that his mission will be to preach the final woe, not only to Korea, but all Gentile nations. And in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. Now this is once again the prophet Enoch, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Continuing on in the book of Revelation, we see, how Enoch's primary mission will be to the far-off Gentiles. Revelation 10, verse 2. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the earth. Is it me, or does it sound like his refrigerator's got a problem in the background? Now this indicates that... Maybe his wife's vacuuming. Enoch's mission is to the far-off Gentile nations. And the angel which I saw stand on the sea and on the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. Could this sea and earth imagery also indicate an island nation? 
I'm he's losing me. I, I have no idea what he's talking about anymore. Go and take this little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands. Maybe a fish got sucked up into his uh, into the filter. You know, that sound kind of sounds like that. on the sea and on the earth. I believe this land and sea imagery refers to the peninsula of Korea. Korea is almost completely surrounded. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He's seeing Korea in there. Again, I just asked the question, if World War III has started, where are all the troops mustering? Which front is being, are the major battles being fought on? <sighs> also tells us about Enoch and Elijah and their missions in the end times. Daniel 12, verse 5. No more. No more. I can't take it. <laughs> um, uh, Mr. Third Eagle, uh, just it, again, you know, if you really are so convinced that uh, World War III has started, again, where's all the major World War III coverage? Um, where are the, uh, you know, the media folks embedded with the troops as they get ready to fight the major battles? Um. And then I've got the you know, the obvious question again: If Enoch and Elisha, or Elijah are here, and they've come back, you know, to preach, you know, the last woe, um, why haven't they held a press conference? Um, you know what I mean? You said it'd be exciting to see what they look like. Yet you've announced that they they're here, but don't you think they're the ones that would announce that they're here if they were here? Yeah, I see. Again, I go back to what I said just a few minutes ago. I, I don't think that William Tapley needs new lighting anymore. I think somebody needs to take the video camera away from him. All right, we're up on our second break, and when we come back, it'll be sermon review time. Got a great sermon. It's not really a sermon, it's a lecture uh, that was recommended to me by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. He, Charmley, he's not the one preaching or lecturing in it. Uh, despite the fact it's a it's a good one and it's timely, it's it's kind of well you'll you'll get what I'm saying on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Got a good lecture uh, that was recommended to me by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Uh, he passed this along to me. I thought it was just brilliant. Well, details here in a second here. Got to, you know, rock out to my uh, bumper music. Do the white man overbite and try to look cool. Hang on. It's not working. We should just jump into the sermon review. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon isn't really a sermon. It's a lecture that was recommended to me by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. And it's of a lecture delivered by a gentleman by the name of Hugh Palmer in uh, at the 2010 uh, Keel Biblical Assembly. From what I can gather, it looks like it was a gathering of church leaders, pastors, and uh, you know those types of uh, folks who uh, do vocational ministry there in the UK. And uh, Hugh Palmer's lecture is uh, based upon uh, really the book of Corinthians. And uh, I'm not, it doesn't come with a title, at least not on the website. So I'm going to give it one. I'm going to give this one a working title. And the name of it is How to Lose the Gospel Without Denying the Faith. Yeah, it's this is going to be interesting. And it, you pay close attention to Hugh Palmer's point here. And that is is that how Hugh Paul, uh, how the Apostle Paul in the book of Corinthians continually refers to those erring brothers in Corinth as brothers. Yeah, I, I think uh, this is a timely lecture that many of us need to hear, me included. So anyway... Let me kill the music here. Without any further ado, uh, before Hugh Palmer takes the stage, uh, the the the, the uh, speaker before him is going to read from First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen, I believe, and uh, and then introduce Hugh, Palm, Hugh Palmer. So here is the lecture I've entitled "How to Lose the Gospel Without Denying the Faith." You know, the, here we go. Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the first uh, 10 verses. 11 verses. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Let's turn to prayer briefly together. Like I arranged before tonight, I just thought back over many events like this, which have played their part, sometimes unexpectedly, in shaping my life my ministry and we pray for that for each of us tonight. We come from many things and many pressures but we pray that as we hear you, that we'll hear God's voice speaking to us from his word to our hearts and to our lives and that he will move us with obedience to that word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures and we thank you for anyone who's ever encouraged us to read them taught us in spoken word or in print what they mean and open them to us so that our hearts can feed upon them. And we thank you for Hugh and for his ministry as our preacher and teacher. We thank you for this opportunity of fellowship together from many churches and we pray for this time together tonight that you will speak to us through your word. Open our hearts to it, as your word is opened to our hearts, that we may understand it and be obedient to it. We pray for your blessing upon us as we meet together tonight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, thank you very much for your welcome. Thank you for uh, making me feel so at uh, home here. Folk have been ever so kind. There's almost always one uh, glitch that gets you, isn't it? And mine came uh, just when uh, I was uh, being got a cup of tea. Could we have a cup of tea for the speaker? Uh, I thought there was a teapot there. It all looked fine. And then a quick reply came instantly back. Is he any good? <laughs> Which is hard to sort of answer before the event, isn't it? Uh, Look, I'll tell you a deal I, I work out now. You see, uh, I, I was uh, converted as a student. I was converted by a, a fellow student who was a Christian who used to take me along to meetings uh, 
uh, each week that the Christian Union put on where they explain the gospel. Uh, and we'd go along. I mean, I was frankly, you know, I didn't have any great interest, but he was a nice guy and I didn't have anything else to do, so I kind of went along. I was a bit of a wet rag, really. And, and on the way out, my friend would earnestly sort of say to me, doing his best to try and follow up uh, some wonderfully spellbinding evangelistic talk, uh, uh, what did you think of that, Hugh? And I would say, uh, good speaker. And I thought it was a wonderful answer because it ended the conversation straight away. <laughs> you know, there was nothing more really to be said. He didn't quite know where to go from there. Uh, and so I've now found it a, a, a really sort of quite a helpful thing now, whenever I'm speaking anywhere, I say, look, let's take that for granted, shall we? Uh, <laughs> and then we can talk about uh, the more serious things uh, uh, straight away, uh, assuming that. So I enjoyed the cup of tea. It was a good speaker. Uh, and uh, let's get down to work. Um, it was a lovely cup of tea, actually, so thank you. Uh, the other strange thing about tonight, isn't it, is that normally uh, when preachers are up the front, front, they're urging you to come out of the darkness and into the light. And tonight, <clears throat> I'm in the darkness uh, and you're in the light. Um, so I'm hoping I can uh, read my notes and my Bible as we go along. And we'll definitely have to reverse the gestures and so on. Uh, but do have 1 Corinthians 15 open in front of you. Uh, and picture in your mind, will you? a strategic location, uh, the sort of place where people are always coming and going, so it has a disproportionate influence, the, the, the place, because they're always passing word about it uh, everywhere around. Um, imagine a sort of urban population, but the kind of rough, seedy lifestyles that make it anything but Bible Belt. Uh, and it's untouched for Christ. Uh, plenty of religion, of course, there's always plenty of religion around, but this is virgin territory for the gospel of Jesus. Um, if you've a church planter's heart, of course, you're instantly thinking opportunity, but you're too late because someone's already taken it, uh, and uh, uh, God has blessed it. And if we were reading the very beginning of the letter, it would speak about how Paul is writing to the church of God in Corinth. And I would say they are uh, six of the most remarkable words you'll find. The Church of God in Corinth. The idea that there could be one. I mean, Corinth was a, was a, a, a port city, of sailors everywhere, which is why there was a pretty seedy life, lifestyle going on. Uh, uh, in Greek theatre of the day, they had a, a word, Corinthosane, you see here. To, to Corinthianize, to be a Corinthian. Uh, and every time a Corinthian appeared on stage, they were drunk. I mean, that was their idea of what Corinthians were like. Uh, and uh, uh, here is uh, uh, Paul, and he's come uh, into uh, a Corinth. If you've ever been to Corinth and seen the ruins, you'll see that, that uh, the main city was dominated by an enormous temple to Apollo. And just outside the city, there's, there's Acro-Corinth, uh, a great rock, and on the top of it, there was the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And according to several sources, uh, there used to be hundreds of temple prostitutes that would come down and sort of flood the city uh, every night. Well, whether they did or not, there was certainly that kind of thing going on, uh, and, and you can tell it. Now, into that into that mix, the gospel's planted. 
and the church of God will grow. And however far you think 21st century UK is going from its Christian past, all it's doing is rushing at great speed back to where Corinth started from. Same with America. And the gospel could grow there. Which keeps me with hope the gospel can grow here. Actually, Corinthians is an easier and easier letter to teach from because you, you have to have shorter and shorter steps to get from Corinth to so much of 21st century UK. The, the lifestyle issues uh, are rapidly converging. And uh, here is this church bond. It's a remarkable church bond. If you know the story and you can look it up in Acts 18, Paul does what he usually does. He goes to the synagogue first of all. Uh, and when they won't listen, uh, he uh, leaves the synagogue. And, and you know where he sets up his church plant? I'm in a nice, peaceful place to it in the house next door. Oh, and who should join them? But the leader of the synagogue comes and joins them. You, you can imagine, can't you, the press in Stoke, if that happened. You know, you leave the, the, the church and the minister leaves it, and next, the house next door, you set up the, the church plant. Well, that's where the church of God in Corinth began. And uh, here we are just a few years later, and it's going pear-shaped. It's going pear-shaped. Now, it happens with church, it happens with older established churches as well. I mean, you just hardly need telling that bit. Uh, it happens with church plants. I've come across more and more people, they're very enthusiastic to start up. Uh, these are folk who are uh, looking to head into some sort of ordained ministry. Uh, and uh, there's a growing number who love the idea of starting a church plant and all the possibilities. And they'll say to me things like, Hugh, it's much easier to uh, 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 start from scratch with something new than to try and you know, turn around the old and the dying and bring new life into that and so on. And, and yes, it can well be. They sometimes forget that though there are desperate difficulties where folk are sort of inoculated against the gospel and hardened and so on, it can be not that easy to ride a bucking bronco either. And when new life comes with uh, uh, no background to it, uh, it can be quite hard to keep the new life moving in the right direction. It is what happens in Corinth. So, um, here we come with a, a, a health warning tonight. Uh, a health warning whether your church is new or old. Uh, here's some, you know, I hope this is prevention rather than cure. And, and at the heart of it, at the heart of it is this thing, I, I, I think I got this from David Cook who runs the uh, uh, Missionary College in Sydney, um, but what goes without saying must be said. What goes without saying must be said. Let me explain what I mean. Um, because it sums up what's going on in Corinth. And chapter 15 may seem a strange place to uh, dip into a letter. You kind of think, uh, by then we ought to know where we're going. But I think the heart of what's happening uh, is uh, uh, here, uh, and, and you'll find it uh, here. 1 Corinthians is a letter, you see, that's full of response to all kinds of questions. If you know the letter, uh, he begins in chapter 1 by saying, uh, uh, you know, my brothers, um, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are factions among you. 
Uh, you know, there are snitches in Corinth, and the apostles heard, and they're all in little factions, you know, one group and another group and another group. Yeah, that, that's what's going on, and if you read the letter, it's like that. And again and again, as you go through there, you keep finding Paul is obviously answering questions that are being put to him, or issues that someone said to him. Uh, you know, it's actually reported among you, he'll say in chapter 5. In chapter 7, now, concerning the matters you wrote about. In chapter 8, now, about food sacrifice to idols, which is a problem they're asking you about. In chapter 11, I hear that when you come together, well, you don't want to know what they do when they come together because it's all over the shop. In chapter 12, now, about the spirituals. About spiritual gifts. And it takes until chapter 15 before Paul has uh, surfaced from under the weight of all the requests and issues that have been piling up on his desk. And finally, he gets a chance to say what's on his heart and mind uh, and come straight with them. It's the first time, so to speak, he goes on the front foot. And uh, when he does, uh, look what he says. Look, look down at verse uh, 3. For what I received, what I received from Christ, I passed on to you as of first importance. And there seems to me to be one of the major keys to understanding the whole letter, as of first importance. See, if you're going to understand 1 Corinthians, you need to explain how Paul can... Uh, Pick a different quarrel with this church pretty much each chapter he comes to. Now there's something else wrong with them. And at the same time, spend the whole letter telling them that they're his brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I don't know how many times it is he uses the phrase, um, but it's there at the end of... Uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 39, therefore, uh, my dear brothers, it's there, chapter 15, verse 1, now, uh, uh, brethren, brothers and sisters, it's there at the end of chapter 15, again, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. It's always brothers, 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 brothers. Now listen to this point, brothers, 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 brothers. This is a church that was completely screwed up. And yet Paul doesn't say, that's it. i got to separate from you. You guys are gone. I, I won't have anything to do with any of you all. It's not his attitude. And, and uh, he writes to them as if they're in the Christian family, and yet you sort of feel they could hardly have made more mistakes than they're making. Uh, and I just want to say, my fear is that we are rapidly losing the ability in my experience, to say to one another, brother, sister, you're wrong. We either feel if we say brother, sister, well then we can't possibly say you're wrong. Or we're going to say you're wrong, so you can't possibly be a brother or sister. But you read this letter, and again, and again, and again, and again, you say, Brothers, sisters, you're wrong. If I'm going to understand this letter, I, I, I've got to explain how there can be so much wrong, and yet there is no significant apologetic, no doctrinal restatement of these gospel essentials. 
You know, it's not like Galatians where he's uh, saying anathema and speaking about uh, preaching a different gospel. And the key is, what is of first importance? For a church to go pear-shaped, you don't need to preach heresy. Or even have sexual immorality, though the Corinthians managed to do that bit. Now, you just need to shift priorities. You just need to move what's of first importance to one side. What goes without saying must be said. Let me explain. Here is the first thing I, I, I want to say. How to lose the gospel without denying it. How to lose the gospel without denying it. And I think this is a real danger in the evangelical church in the UK today. Um, you see, it's how I can affirm uh, the creed uh, without fingers crossed. I can sign whatever doctrinal basis you put in front of me um, without uh, uh, any uh, self-deceit. Um, so there's no need for a doctrinal restatement in the letter. They, they believe it all. But I lose the first importance. And I can move on without denying it. Uh, and I'm not careful. I'll end up with another gospel without denying it. I mean, let me give you an, an example. This is way back uh, now when I was at least relatively young. Uh, and I remember being asked to speak. It was a sort of evangelical gathering. And they asked me to speak on what is the gospel. And I was worried because it was a gathering of, of lots of sort of... Uh, uh, ministers and senior laymen and I, actually I knew who was going there and some of them were the people who taught me the gospel in the first place I thought I don't know what to do here but anyway they asked me to preach on what is the gospel so I preached from 1 Corinthians 15 I preached on these are the things of first importance Christ died for our sins was, was buried rose again on the third day uh, appeared uh, and I finished my little bit and I sat down and the next speaker got up and the next speaker began like this um, they said um, well, I said, I don't think we're in any danger of forgetting that, are we? We're a group of evangelicals. What we're much more likely to forget is, and then we've gone to their topic. And as I sat there, I sort of thought this was the young buck being sort of put down, down with thank praise. But of course, the more the talk went on, the more I realised just how dangerous that sentence was. You see what had happened? Now, we've had the things of first importance. Well, we're not going to forget those, are we? Now, the thing you might forget, the thing you really have got to concentrate on is... And now suddenly it's something else. is sounding as if it's the first importance essential. Without ever having denied the other. Uh, and it's a, a, an easy thing to slip into if we're not careful. Um, what goes without saying the first important things we're all agreed on we won't forget those must be said I think it was Don Carson who uh, uh, described the progression of the, the Mennonite church as this like this he said uh, the um, first generation they preached the gospel and believed that it had consequences socially and otherwise the second generation assumed the gospel and focused on the consequences. The third generation denied the gospel and lived the consequences. Well, actually, 
they'll quickly stop living the consequence. But you see, it, it begins just by moving the first importance off centre stage. Uh, and um, in, in 1 Corinthians, if you read through it, you, you see what some of the things are that happens when you lose what's of first importance as being first importance. There are little blocks of material. There's no time to sort of dip into one of them. If you look in chapters 1 to 4, you'll find that it's uh, actually all to do with uh, leadership styles and ministry patterns, and they're riddled with factions. Do not put a hand up, but it would be a big surprise to me if I asked you to do so, uh, if uh, there were factions in any of the churches represented here, if there were no hands that ever went up. I mean, churches with factions in are far too common, aren't they? And what's going on in Corinth, as you look at it, seems to be something like this, that my way of doing things is the only way of doing things. My way of doing things is actually more important about who we group, group around than the gospel first importance. So, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, you find that going on. They've even got a little faction which says, I follow Christ, which sounds as if it ought to be the right thing, but no, no, they're the ones that are playing totally snippy games, and say, yeah, we don't need any of these factions, I just follow Christ, I'm not like you lot, or you lot. No, they're doing the same. Uh, and you see, um, I've spent most of my ministry in, in large churches, which means you're almost always, by definition, stepping into big shoes when you take on responsibility for it, and often big shoes that have been there for a considerable number of years. Uh, at, um, at All Souls, of course, the shadow of John Stock looms large, but Richard Bewes had been rector before me for 22 years. I've been there for five years now. And this summer we had a sort of uh, leaders day with all the sort of small group leaders and everything else around. And in one of the breaks, um, one uh, uh, youngish lady really came up to me and, and uh, just said to me, Hugh, I, I'm really sorry, I, I've just not been able to um, get over uh, the fact that Richard isn't uh, running things here until now. And as she spoke, uh, and I was sort of, the brain was only slowly taking in what was going on. What she was really saying to me is, Hugh, it's taken me five years to be able to move on from the fact that Richard has left and to come to terms with a, a different person running the church. Uh, and, and yet, as I was trying to come to terms with it, I thought after I thought, five years, but you're still here. For all the disappointments of having me there. Well, for all the, the, the changes she struggled to come to terms with, she's still there. Because she's actually a gospel person. And it mattered even more than the disappointments. I was at um, Christchurch Forward before. Uh, in Sheffield before, before I, I came down to All Souls and uh, I had to step into Philip Hacking's shoes there. Philip uh, had been the giant personality, the dominant personality in that uh, church uh, and he'd been there for 29 years. Um, and uh, again, you know, I'm not Philip Hacking. 
And it was a massive gear change for everyone. Uh, and, and I thought one of the great testimonies to Philip's ministry was that people didn't leave and sort of all take fright when the, the, the change came along. Now, they, they, they lived with the change. And, you know, when changes come, it's always wonderful for some and awful for others. That's just what's going to happen. Uh, but they were gospel people. And he actually trained them to be gospel people even more than Philip Hacking people. So, let me just have a word to, to, to church leaders here tonight, if I can. Um, succession planning is a sort of vogue phrase, isn't it, around uh, uh, leadership? Um, and it's difficult to know quite what you do in succession planning in churches, but uh, think succession planning, will you? I spoke with Tim Keller, who runs a Redeemer Church in, in New York, uh, and uh, he told me, yes, in my situation it's even worse because I'm the founding pastor. And he's built it up, and he's got about sort of four church plants around Manhattan and everything off the, the, the mother church. And he was starting to work out succession planning 15 years before he was leaving. Well, I can't get my head around doing that, but here's the big tip for succession planning. Here's the bit of succession planning. There's lots of things about the succession you really can't control, but here's one thing you can do. So if you're a church leader, take this bit of succession planning on board, will you? Uh, the most significant bit of succession planning you can do is to train your church family to love the gospel more than they love you and more than they love your method. That would be the most secure bit of succession planning you can pull off. But the gospel is of first importance for them. So, because that's not there, the church is factionalised. Or take the other favourite bit that everyone knows of, of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. You know the bits about the spiritual gifts? Ah. Oh. The gifts are more important than the gospel, aren't they? You, you've only got to read through chapter 12. It's blindingly obvious that's what's happening. It's why the church is going into all their little groupings again. And, uh, you know, if you speak in tongues, you're in the in crowd. If you don't, you're in the out crowd. Uh, some of our churches have managed to reverse it, of course. Now, the other way around, you know, uh, everyone tells you how wonderful service is. Yeah, but you do know she speaks in tongues. You, oh, 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 well... But, you know, what, what's going on? If the in-crowd and the out-crowd depends on whether you speak it up, so that's more important than how you stand on the gospel. That's the issue that's happening. Uh, and, uh, you know, for some of us, it's not those sort of spiritual gifts. Actually, we're just far more vulnerable to the people who are socially confident. They've got that kind of a gift. So immediately we shove them into these, we'll follow them, uh, it may not be the same as gospel money. Uh, I can remember when I was uh, leading student missions, going to one university, and uh, uh, they got me on. It's one of these things where you know they signed me up to do the mission, and then suddenly realised they got a little bit of a problem. Uh, there was a bit of a split in the, those days, and you know they're sort of charismatic, non-charismatic, and they came to me and they said, "Hugh, what are we going to say to the, the more charismatic people?" Because I was then at a church that really didn't have much of a reputation and like charismatics. Well, what do we say to them? Uh, will you be divisive to them? I said, you can tell, I thought the one Corinthians 15, I said, you can tell them, this is my gospel. 
What our preachers of first importance is Christ died for our sins, and was buried, was raised again on the third day and appeared. I said, if, if that's first importance for them, uh, I'll be able to work with them. No problem at all. We can have our discussion if we want to about the gifts and so on uh, elsewhere. Uh, if they want to put something else up as being of first importance, and if that isn't there, then it can't be a proper gospel, uh, then we've got a problem. But if your first importance gospel is Christ died for our sins and was raised, now we're on the same gospel. But you see, we've got to keep saying what goes without saying must be said or we'll have something else as a first importance instead. And we'll make that the litmus paper test as to whether you're in or out, whether I'm in your group or your group. That's what's going on in Corinth. Uh, when we did a church plant uh, from Fullwood, the, the, the curate, who was my uh, licensed sheep stealer, he was allowed to recruit uh, 50 people from the church family to take them off on the church plant. Uh, and he interviewed everyone he took with him. Uh, and he would uh, really say these things to them. He said, um, uh, if you're expecting something that is just like Christchurch Fullwood, don't come. It'll look totally different. And they, they nodded happily at that. His next line to them was, um, if you're dissatisfied with Christ, don't come. It'll be exactly the same. <laughs> and what he's meaning is the gospel will be exactly the same. And they're just very wise lines to say to people. The church will look very different because it's a different scale, size, people, situation. But the gospel is going to be exactly the same. What goes without saying must be said. Um, I've had uh, Don Carson say a couple of times now, he, he's a theological uh, uh, lecturer in a theological college a seminary uh, over in the States, uh, and he said, I've discovered um, that the students uh, don't take notice of everything I've said, which may not be a sort of blinding revelation to, to anyone else who lectures or even preaches. Um, we have a sneaking suspicion. You don't take note of everything we say in, in our sermons. But he went on to say this. He said, to, but I realise what they do take note of is what I'm most enthusiastic and passionate about. What's the bee in my bonnet at the moment? Actually, that's actually a very telling thing, isn't it? Because if the bee in our bonnet at the moment is not the first importance gospel, our friends, the church family, the Bible study group, the whatever, they'll pick that one up. They won't have heard all your wonderfully nuanced little lines that care to Well, I know it may not be the first importance, but this is really exciting when we're into creation, care, or healing, or whatever it may be. Uh, they hear it as that's the big issue. What goes without saying must be said as of first importance. How to lose the gospel without denying it. And secondly, what um, matters to the gospel and must stay central. And when you look down at uh, verse 3, you see uh, as what he received and passed on as a first importance, you discover very quickly, don't you, uh, what uh, is a first importance? Christ is a first importance in the gospel. Uh, he's the heart and focus of the gospel. It's he, not us, 
who's the mover and shaker. It's Christ who died, it's Christ who's buried, it's Christ who's raised, it's Christ who appeared. We only feature in the little phrase, our sins. <laughs> Great line. It's Christ who died, it's Christ who was raised, it's Christ who... Yeah, uh, our, we are only featured in the little phrase, for our sins. Great, great, great line. Bravo. Uh-huh. Uh, a few months back, someone was telling me about a press conference that a newly appointed bishop had. I mean, they tend to have them whenever they've been appointed, and everyone asks them, I'm sure, desperate uh, questions that you hate to be in it. But this person's comment to me was, he said, I listened to the whole of the press conference. He never mentioned Jesus' name once. It doesn't make him heretic or anything like that. Uh, but it does make you ask, uh, what is of first importance in this gospel? Because I can't read these verses and not mention Jesus. Not mention Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You see what you've got there? And he was buried. You, you've got the event, Christ died. You've got the evidence he was buried, because what do you bury? You bury a dead body. You've also got the explanation. Now, we put it in a lazy way of thinking sometimes, where we say, I go to the Bible and it tells me the, the, the big important events, and the important events is the death of Jesus, the cross, yes, that's fine. Now, what was the cross all about? Okay, look up from your Bibles and I'll tell you what... No, 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 don't look up from your Bibles. Keep your head down in your Bibles. I'll t that's where you'll discover what the cross was all about. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Here's where I'm going to get the explanation. Not the wonderful thoughts of the preacher, but the scriptures. Foretold, <coughs> predicted, explained for me what it means that Christ died for our sins. And it's of first importance. Sin is the problem. Sin is my rescue need, isn't it? And there's a moral framework for the gospel. John Benton in Evangelicals now uh, gave a review of, um, uh, of our society. And one of the things he said, which I thought was really quite interesting, is we've moved from a moral to an enjoyment culture. We've moved from, from uh, the importance being good to the importance being feel good. I think there's a lot in it. And one of the reasons why, as churches, we've struggled to engage in the public square in our country is that uh, I think we've found it hard to know how to hold a feel-good society to account morally. And uh, we, we keep changing the explanation of why Christ died for our sins. So I read John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Oh, hang on, there's three words that have been missed out. Might not perish. Stuart Townend, uh, who writes so many wonderful uh, hymns, uh, he and Keith Getty, they in Christ alone. Uh, they've got that line, uh, and on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. 
and uh, one evangelical grouping that was singing the song wrote to Stuart Townend and said, uh, would it be all right for them to change the line that says the wrath of God was satisfied and change it to the love of God was satisfied? And to the great credit, Stuart said, no. No, that's not the gospel. And you can't want to remove that line if Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures is of first importance to you. Steve Chalk's book, The Lost Message of Jesus, which I think really became the lost message of Steve Chalk because it kind of disappeared around the cosmic uh, child abuse sentence. Uh, and as a result, actually, people have missed a number of good things he said in the book. Uh, there's, there's lots of good stuff in there. Uh, it's dangerous, come, I, I think, uh, around here is the heart of the evangelist for the lost, and his love for the people he's trying to reach has actually blurred at times the theological framework he's his gospel into. He tells a, a great incident, and he tells it very powerfully, uh, of this church that's had a, a children's holiday club. And they've all obviously had a wonderful week, and you've got the service on the Sunday at the end of the week, and he's gone there with the, the friend. And the, the preacher said, um, the children this week have learned the four most important things in the world. And again, he said, they've learned the four most important things in the world, and you're sort of waiting for him to tell them what the four most important things in the world are. And, and rather than tell them, he gets a, a, a six-year-old girl up to, to say, what are the four most important things in the world? And, and she says this, um, the four most important things in the world are, one, um, God created me, two, I'm a sinner, three, Jesus came to die for me, four, until I accept him as Lord and Saviour, I can't receive the abundant life God has for me. And Steve Chalk says, my, my friend sat in her seat stunned. Was the second most important thing in the world that eight-year-olds need to know, really, that they're sinners? Is this what we've reduced the majestic message of Jesus to? I'm wondering, I'm thinking, yeah, he's right, I'm sure that. That really is the second most important thing in the world an eight-year-old child knows. And then I, I open up 1 Corinthians 15 again. And I read, What I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. Yeah, it matters that much. What goes without saying must be said. And it's not just because Christ's death, but it's also his resurrection. Uh, he's raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That will give us the explanation of the resurrection, the significance of it. And it's a significance that has not just to do with Jesus and who he is, though it has massive things to say for that. It's also got to do with, with us and our future. How death will be swallowed up by victory by the time we get to the end of chapter 15. How all things will be put under Christ's feet. How he's going to come in judgment. The resurrection speaks of that. It also speaks of the confidence and certainty of the new heaven and the new earth and the new creation world that lies ahead for us. Which means don't reduce the gospel to a this world thing. Don't reduce the gospel to the prosperity gospel of, of, of health and wealth now. One good friend of mine said that the, uh, 
the major difficult, the most difficult thing with the prosperity gospel is real life. Well, the most difficult doctrinal thing with the prosperity gospel is the resurrection. No, no, it's the future. What matters to the gospel and must be said third thing as I close why there's only one gospel and it's vital why there's only one gospel and it's vital see, look on through these verses and, and you begin to realise this is Paul's gospel the gospel I received he says but he also knows you know, not everyone views him as totally legitimate. He knows there was something odd about him. So you get first thing, uh, to one abnormally born. Of all the people to whom the risen Christ appeared. Now, he is on the list. But kind of out of the time frame. And there's something twisted about it. But, you look at verse 11. You see, this gospel, this is what we, I, Paul, or they, all the other apostles, preach. And you believed. See, there is no other gospel. So now, it was very important for the Corinthians because uh, they, well, this feeling was going about Corinth that they might have been shortchanged by Paul. It may not have been the real deal. And uh, it's an idea that constantly goes around the 21st century world as well. People, you know, we love Jesus, but Paul. I think he may have just changed things around a little bit and messed it up for us. And uh, you find that comes up uh, uh, again and again and again. And what Paul is saying here is, no, just a second, it doesn't matter which apostle you listen to, you've got the same gospel. This is the of first importance gospel. The only New Testament gospel there is. And you see what it does. This is the gospel by which you're saved. It's what the gospel does, and nothing else. I can clean up the environment and still not be saved. Uh, we're we're um, looking to start a debt counselling service because the debt uh, figures, you, you can read any of the stats, aren't you? They're, they're, they're awful. Uh, we feel central London, there's plenty of it around there. If we can help people, it would be wonderful. Uh, if we get the, the ministry up and going, uh, the criterion for success will not be that someone uh, is free of debt, though we'll work as professionals as we can to get to that place. <laughs> what we're longing for is that someone's saved. This is the gospel that saves. It's why it's of first importance, and it's why it's of 21st century first importance, because it saves 21st century. If you hold firmly to the word. Wonderful New Testament assurance, isn't it? Uh, it does the gospel say to you, oh, that's wonderful, and you're about to put your feet out and nod off, and it says, if you hold firmly to the word. Because the true believer does hold firmly. Uh, the, the true believer keeps going. What word? 
Well, the first important word, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and appeared. And you say, is that it? I say, yes, that's it. You say, I knew that before I came. Yeah, you knew it before you came. Well, the Corinthians knew it before Paul started writing. He says that, doesn't he, at the beginning? Look at verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you. Okay, you come all the way from London to tell us what we knew already. Yeah, sorry, I waited till the very end, until I'd had my cup of tea, uh, before I, I let on the fact. Yeah, sorry, I've just come all the way from London to tell you what you knew already. What goes without saying must be said. How to lose the gospel without denying it. Just stop majoring on the majors. What matters to the gospel and must be central, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was raised according to the scriptures. Why? There's only one gospel and it's vital. Because it's the one gospel that saves. Stand firm in it. Keep it central. God bless you. Thanks for listening. So there you have it. Thoughtful, thought-provoking, good stuff. We got to keep the first thing, the first thing, the thing that is of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Fantastic stuff. And that's how the answer to the question, you know, how to, uh, how to lose the gospel without denying it or denying the faith, make the first thing, uh, a subnote, a footnote, a, a thing that you assume, something that really doesn't get talked about. Put something else as first importance. And, uh, well, that's a formula for disaster. And it takes on many, 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 many forms. Christ and him crucified for our sins. That's the first thing. And it always is to be the first thing, never the assumed first thing. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions to keep doing what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, then I would ask that you would please uh, do so. Uh, because without your financial support, we can't keep doing what we're doing. So the way you support us financially is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6 95 cents to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to contact me, is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. 
Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.